Jane Jackson. And I'm Colin Denny. And you're listening to A Better Workplace from Wistia. Hey, Colin. So are you a fan of Star Trek by any chance? Not very big on Star Trek. I am more of a Star Wars guy. Uh, but what's on your mind? Well, the other day I was thinking about Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Do you remember that one? Uh, I believe that's the one where they go back in time. I think all of them, they go back in time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that is probably true. Does this have something to do? Is this the one with the whales? Totally. This is definitely the one with the whales. In fact, it's those very same whales that got me thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thinking about what? I'm curious. The movie starts with this massive alien probe making its way to Earth wreaking havoc. It's just nuts. Yes, that is what alien probes generally do. What do you make of it? It appears to be a probe, Captain. From an intelligence unknown to us. (laughs) Well, this probe is sending off this message of immense power. Like, the power is so incredible. It's knocking out starships. You see the power go out. You see them freeze in space. Their call is being carried on an amplification wave of enormous power it's just creating havoc that that does not sound like a good time it gets so much worse in the next Mm. minute and a half it basically is aiming this powerful message at the oceans which doesn't sound too bad but is actually starting these massive hurricanes lightning storms the ocean starts evaporating it's like a big deal things do not look good for planet earth do not approach earth The transmissions of an orbiting probe are causing critical damage to this planet. But as it turns out, this thing traveled God knows how many light years, all because it was no longer hearing the whale songs of Earth. Because, you know, whales were all dead. Spock, what do you make of that? Most unusual. An unknown form of energy of great power and intelligence. Evidently unaware that its transmissions are destructive find it illogical that its intention should be hostile. Really? You think this is its way of saying hi there to the people of the Earth? There are other forms of intelligence on Earth, Doctor. Only human arrogance would assume the message must be meant for man. You're suggesting the transmission is meant for a life form... So, they're going back in time to get whales. Yes. Hmm. Is this the part where you tell the audience that they haven't tuned into the wrong podcast and how any of this has to do with DEI or creating a better workplace. This is indeed the place where I tell the audience that they are listening to the right podcast. Today we're talking about intent versus impact, and I thought this was an interesting way to introduce the topic. The probe wasn't actually attacking Earth. It just missed its friends, the humpback whales. The probe actually had no idea its communication would wreak any havoc let alone on an entire star system. It was just saying, hey guys, where are you, my little friends? I I miss you. The intent of the probe was communication. The impact was mayhem and destruction on a galactic scale. Okay, Jane, I see where you're going with this. That is is well done. Thank you, Colin. (laughs) How often does that happen in the work environment? 
where our forms of communication may have one intent, but the impact is entirely different. The impact may even be detrimental to the well-being or emotional health of those at an organization. Unfortunately, it's often those in equity-seeking groups who are negatively impacted by good intentions gone awry. And while people in these groups don't necessarily have to worry about global annihilation, the impact, nonetheless, can cause levels of stress that not only affect productivity, but can have psychological and physical ramifications. Those looking to create better workplaces that feel safe and secure for all groups of people can and should address these issues ahead of time. In an earlier episode, we talked about what goes into making a code of conduct. That's a document that lays out how a company or organization will handle various situations in a workplace environment. One such situation is when some action by one person or a group of people negatively impacts another person or group of people. On the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force here at Wistia, we've certainly had discussions about the cultural norms that we have. And one of the topics that has come up often is this concept of intent versus impact. And I think oftentimes in businesses, you hear this statement of, assume the best of intentions from your peers. On the surface, that makes a lot of sense. You don't want a workplace where that's not the case. But it can also create situations that are problematic. Let's say somebody is subject to a microaggression. If this culture is built around assuming the best of intentions, that puts additional weight on the negatively affected individual. It may send the signal that their feelings are less important than creating a space where their coworkers can have these missteps and learn in a safe environment. We've talked a lot about how to properly weigh those two things, and I think a code of conduct certainly ties into that. You're setting the expectation that people are open to feedback and creating a place where we can more safely point out when there's an impact that isn't intended, but is very real and creates an emotional response. One blog post we read early on in our research to create a code of conduct was by Annalie Flowerhorn. Annalie is an engineer, author, and DEI consultant for the tech industry with a degree in peace studies and a focus in community conflict. In this post, Annalie talks about the problems associated with the idea of assuming good intent when someone does something that causes some transgression on someone else, no matter how seemingly innocuous. But instead of me attempting to explain it, let's hear directly from Annalie. So the big thing that I ask folks to keep in mind is that when you're talking about assuming good intent, that assumption of good intent, that assumption of innocence is already baked into sort of systemic um, structures of power, right? There is already a presumption of innocence, a presumption that you didn't mean to be racist if you were white. There is a presumption of innocence that you didn't mean to be sexist if you were a man. Like people already grant you that good intent. There's already the like, don't ruin his life. There's already the like, you know, people should be innocent until proven guilty, that that's a really harsh accusation to make. Do you really want to, you know, say that about somebody? There's already that assumption that being called racist or sexist, even if somebody isn't saying that, even if they're just saying you did something racist or sexist, there's already this assumption that making 
making that accusation is as bad or worse than experiencing the behavior. And so when you tell people to assume good intent, people mean that as like, a, oh, that should go all ways, but it's not going to go all ways because it's not a level, you're already not working on a level field, right? And so there's already one side that has this presumption of good intent. And then there's a side that no matter how many times you say assume good intent, people are not going to assume good intent of them. And so putting that in your code of conduct reinforces that systemic structural bias towards assuming that people with power didn't misuse their power and that people without power are complaining for no reason. It's almost like it's uh what's the best way to put this? Maybe just uh, avoiding avoiding the conflict, making it feel comfortable and avoiding the discomfort. And you know, it is right. an uncomfortable situation and should be treated as such. So mm-hmm. um in the blog, you talk a little bit about positive rules still being rules. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering um, if you could expand on that a little bit and, and what exactly that means. Sure. So the example in the post, I'm talking about how in assume good intent, right? Because they're, they're, what they're saying is don't assume bad intent, right? Which would be the negative version of that rule. But if you look at like a, the rules in a kindergarten classroom, right? The rule isn't don't hit. The rule is keep your hands to yourself, which is saying the behavior they want instead of the behavior they don't want. But it's still a rule. If you hit somebody in a classroom where the rule is keep your hands to yourself, you have broken the rules, right? And uh, the same is true of assume good intent, right? People mean it as this sort of like goodwill, light and fluffy, like we should ask for positive behaviors instead of negative ones. But if you do that, then the negative rule still applies. Somebody is still breaking your rules if they do not assume good intent. And then the onus on them is to prove that they shouldn't have assumed good intent, that the onus is then on them to say, look, good intent is not warranted here because X, Y, Z. I did assume good intent and then found that that good intent was not present. Whereas if you leave that out, you know, you can still have that positive expectation and you can still say, hey, yeah, we do assume good intent of people, but that means that if you screw up, if you do something harmful, we assume that you're going to make it right. Because if you really didn't mean it, then you're going to take responsibility for it. You're going to apologize. You're going to stay away from whoever it was if that's what they want. You're not going to sit there and go, how dare you call me racist? I don't have a racist bone in my body. Some of my best friends are black. You're just going to say, oh, gosh, sorry. That was a terrible thing I did and I won't do it again. I was just going to make the the uh, quick anecdote that uh, some of the examples you just gave are all things I have heard <laughs> in my life, and uh, it really is it, it really is a, a a real thing and something that is pervasive and daily. And you know, I think one of the important callouts here is that we have these ideas of what you know sexism or racism and all of these these negative things are and usually it's it's the worst example we can think of and when someone feels like what they did or knows that they did is not representative of that worst example then to right. your point there's no way I could right. be I, how could I be racist like you know right right so I think right. that's an, an important call out there right and that's the thing about microaggressions is that people, it's a death of a thousand paper cuts, right? And people are like, hey, if you're calling me racist, I'm not a member of the KKK. I've never burned a cross on anybody's lawn. It's like, if that's the standard you're holding it yourself to, that bar is below the floorboards, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that's not, or that's not, you're in bad shape if that's your, if that's your standard, right? We want to hold people to a much higher standard than that. I expect that as CEOs or leaders, managers, HR folks, are thinking about how to incorporate this into their norms, 
Um, I imagine there's probably some folks with the question along the lines of, okay, but we shouldn't also be coaching folks to assume the worst in their peers. That doesn't seem Mm -hmm. like a healthy culture. What is the direction that when you're working with these organizations, you push towards in terms of positioning this and Mm -hmm. um, giving them a different way to approach it? Right. Well, in terms of assuming the worst in your peers, you know, it it gets back to that thing of like, there's already this presumption of innocence and presumption of good intent. So if you don't say that, people are like marginalized people don't want to. Like, I know that there's like this feminist hate men or whatever thing, but most people, especially in a work environment, do not want to come out and be like, oh my God, this person said this horrible thing and clearly they're an irredeemable sexist or whatever. You know, there's already this, did he really just say that to me? He couldn't possibly have meant it like that. You know, it must have been. So the people already naturally assume good intent, even when good intent is not warranted. And so you don't really need to say that. And you, you not saying assume good intent does not immediately mean assuming bad intent, right? But the other thing you can do is lay out a very specific set of expectations for how somebody's going to respond if they experience or witness bad behavior in your space um, so that you give people an option of like, okay, this is this is the way that, that this should be handled here. So if you're actually worried about somebody's going to blow up in somebody's face over something minor, you know, that, that usually doesn't happen, right? Usually if somebody blows up in somebody's face, it's it's way more major than it looks, right? And then my first question as a code of conduct and for, like person that that deals with code of conduct and safety is like, okay, what do I not know about this situation that would have warranted that response that seems completely disproportionate, right? Because it probably wasn't because most people do not overreact to situations. Um, that's pretty rare. But then in terms of, of trying to sort of train your team, it also gets back to that thing of like, yeah, we you set the expectations that you want for your team. So you say we want to build a welcoming, inclusive culture. Um, you don't say we have one um, because that, again, like erases the experience of people that have not experienced that in your space. But you say we want to build one. We expect people to contribute to this. We expect that if you are told that you're doing something that's harmful, you're going to stop immediately. And we expect that if you are experiencing something, you know, if you feel safe talking to the person and telling them to stop, you, you can do that. If you don't feel safe, here's the particular people you can come to with that concern who can then help you handle it. Yeah, there's another piece in the blog that stood out to me, which was calling out really the the bravery and the the courage that it takes as someone in a marginalized or equity-seeking group to speak up. And so Mm -hmm. what that really stood out to me as is no matter how the person who said whatever is in question, the, the person with the good intent, regardless of of how uncomfortable they think this situation is, it is almost a a guarantee that it is far more uncomfortable for the person having to step up and say something. It takes a lot of emotional labor to correct somebody when you have been, you know, when you've experienced a microaggression, giving somebody that feedback takes a certain degree of trust, both trust in them and trust in the space that you're in, right? Because if you're going to say, you know, hey, that wasn't cool, and you're going to get back this explosion of like, how dare you accuse me of being sexist or whatever it was that they did, you know, and nobody's going to back you up, you're going to learn pretty quick to just not say anything because it's 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 just better to just leave it alone, right? Even though that that is not safety and that is not inclusion, it's at least not a bigger mess. So it takes a certain degree of trust. And when somebody comes to you with a concern, um, about something you have done, you know, that is a gift that, that they're giving you 
feedback, then they're saying that they actually trust you to handle that feedback responsibly. And so one of the things that I would tell people is, you know, treat that feedback, like respect that that person had the courage to come to you and say that and treat that feedback as a gift. Um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, if somebody says I'm sorry to me, I don't necessarily want to make it okay if it wasn't okay. And so one of the things I, I tell people is instead of leaping immediately to I'm so sorry, start with thank you for telling me, right? Because that took courage and it does benefit you because whatever you just said to that person, you've already said that harm is done, but it can prevent you from, you know, stepping on the next person's foot and being a jerk to the next person. So it, it can help you be a better person and to, to really get past the defensiveness and internalize that. Like if you're able to do that, it's a lot easier to move forward. And it's a lot less likely that you're going to make a jerk of yourself either to that person or to the next person. Yeah. I, I love the way you phrase that because, you know, uh, I, I like putting it as a like you know framing it as an as a net positive like it may be an uncomfortable situation in the moment it may feel really crappy in the moment and you might think about it for you know the next few days whether it's happened to you or you're receiving the feedback but either way seeing it through the lens as a net positive to me is what makes this whole thing encouraging and empowering i think for for both sides of an interaction and, and in a workplace, because like you said, it, 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 framing it as a gift is something, you know, we, we think we always talk about growing pains, right? Like growth is inherently painful, whether that's emotional growth or physical growth, you know, your, your teeth grow and it hurts, right? You know, there's all those mm -hmm. inspirational gym signs that say like, you know, sweat and hard work, like, you know, and so really no matter what way we think about growth, there is usually, you know, either pain or discomfort or something involved that then leads to a net positive, a desired outcome or, um, you know, something that is benefiting you and other people. And then, you know, uh, whatever that, uh, old fra phrase is about, uh, lifting boats. I always forget it, but, <laughs> uh, rising tide should yeah, lift all boats. There you go. <laughs> that's, right. that's the one. It is tough because people, want an inclusive culture, but they do not want to change anything about their culture. And those two things are often incompatible. And especially a lot of times people think that they can get to more inclusive just by adding something to their culture. And sometimes you need to stop and take something away. Um, and that that goes beyond just talking about microaggressions. But, you know, alcohol comes up a lot, especially when we're talking about tech conferences and tech companies. How much of your culture is fueled by alcohol, both because alcohol fuels bad behavior and because that is exclusive, right? If you're going out to drinks after work every night, that's excluding people that don't drink. That's excluding people that have parental or family responsibilities they got to get home to. Like, and if you tell people you've got to change your drinking culture, people that like that drinking culture do not want to hear that. They don't want to hear we can't have a keg in the office, you know, but that, so sometimes you've, you know, you've got to make that uncomfortable change. And so it's like, okay, what can you replace that thing with, you know, and with microaggressions, it's, it's not necessarily a replacement. It's just like a, Hey, don't say these things. Um, but you know, with some other things, it's like, all right, you you got to trade out one thing for another to make a more inclusive space. Um, and so then it's like, all right, how can you make that a positive experience in terms of what are you, what do you have to get rid of and what are you trying to replace it with? And I would also just say, you know, 
don't BS people about it. Like, don't take away a benefit that everybody really likes and be like, oh, we can't have a beer keg anymore, but don't worry, we're getting kombucha, which is just as good because the people that like beer are not going to be like, ooh, delicious kombucha. I'm so glad you did this, right? People that didn't like the beer might be happy about the kombucha, but you might just have to say to the beer people, like, look, this is why we had to take away the beer. And I'm sorry you're upset about it, but, you know, you do get a paycheck every two weeks that you can use to buy your own beer. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it exactly like that because that's dismissive, but, you know, you can say, like, this is why we're doing it. We didn't do it just because we hate you specifically, but because we're trying to build a more inclusive culture so we can have beer or we can have a more diverse and inclusive workspace. And I know, and this is, again, leading with wanting the behavior or expecting the behavior that you want. And I know that we all value a diverse and inclusive workspace where everybody feels welcome here more than we value having beer on tap. As we dig into intent versus impact, you know, it's it's clear that impact is is what matters. Are there times where intention should be factored in to the equation at all? Or is it right. intent doesn't matter in any circumstances? Intent does matter in this sense. When you are doing a code of conduct or, you know, responsible for the safety of a space where you're managing a company, your primary concern around this stuff is making your workplace safe and inclusive. And if you know that somebody did something on purpose and you know that they have no intention of stopping, then, yeah, you got to factor that in because that person is an ongoing threat to the safety and inclusiveness of your workspace. Whereas if somebody does it by accident and then apologizes and takes steps to correct the behavior, then you can say, hey, that person is probably not an ongoing threat. They did something they shouldn't have done and they're trying to make it right. And I, if we have to have that conversation again, it might be a different conversation, but you know, I, I can trust that they're actually trying. You know, If somebody puts porn in their slides in the year 2021 at a technical conference, they knew better. And if they didn't know better, then that's even more concerning, right? And like, they did not do that by accident, mm -hmm. right? Whereas if somebody on a hot mic accidentally drops an F-bomb on your stage, probably they did it by accident. They didn't realize their mic was on. They will say, I'm so sorry. I will do more careful. I will be more careful in the future. Same person, a racial slur on a hot mic. And suddenly it doesn't matter that their mic was hot or not because they shouldn't have said it in the first place. Right. And so if their response is, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize my mic was on. Then the question becomes, okay, why did you say that with your mic off? Like that word doesn't belong in your mouth, whether you're on stage or off. Right. And if, but if the same person is like, I cannot believe that word just came out of my mouth. Right. I have never said that before. I can't believe I just said that. I don't know what happened. I'm so sorry. You know, or they didn't know it was a racial slur. Right. That's a different conversation than if they say blah, blah, cancel culture, blah, blah, PC police. We can't say anything because what they're telling you when they say that is that they're going to say the same thing again as soon as they think they can get away with it. I think uh, Prince said it best where, where he says uh, we're gathered here to, to get through this thing called life. And I feel like conversations like this are what help everybody do that. We're all just trying to get through it. We have to share this space with a lot of people and it's it's just important to keep that in mind as as we as we get through it. So, thank you very much Annalie for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um yeah, and I would say, you know, as in terms of like we're all gathered here to get through this thing called life, right? We're all in this together is where you do want to assume good intent, but you don't want to tell people in your community to assume good intent. You want to assume good intent of them and then hold them to that. And so you say, yeah, we're all in this together. So if you mess up, we expect that you're going to want to make it right because you're not a horrible person. And people will usually, if you expect the best of them, often they will live up to that. Sometimes they will not, but we can always hope.
opportunity to speak with Wiley Davey, a professor of English and Media Studies at Bentley University, and Jaro Fung Oliveres, Director of Corporate Education at the Center for Women and Business at Bentley. They both focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Here at Wistia, we were introduced to them through their Brave Dialogues program. Somebody here at Wistia had been a part of it and thought it was super helpful and something that we should look into for our team. When we started digging in and having a conversation about that program, it became clear they had some really great perspectives also around intent versus impact. You mentioned intent versus impact, and I would love to get back to that. You used the the great example of somebody steps on my foot and I'm in pain and they stepped on my foot. I've been reading more and more dialogue about how even going into that conversation and saying, hey, Colin, you just stepped on my foot and that didn't feel great, really centers around Colin's experience and assuming his good intent. And by that, I mean, if I'm in the moment and he steps on my foot and I'm like, oh, shoot, Colin, we just stepped on my foot. Then there's like some blowback where I should have been very considerate (laughs) of how I delivered the feedback to Colin and centered around him having an experience where he could receive the feedback in a really helpful way. And that that in particular is harmful to equity-seeking groups who are frequently in the situation where they're providing feedback to people in positions of more power and have to already kind of moderate how they deliver that. And it feels like an inherent pressure that they must deliver it in a consumable way and that we must center around that experience. And I'm curious if you you all have any thoughts on that because we've spent some time on the DEI task force thinking about that and the like implicit expectations that it may create. And, and I don't have an answer, so I'd love to hear how you all think about it. Mm, I can start. I think for, uh, to make the feedback palatable, I think is what you're kind of alluding to. And I, I do agree that it is harmful to create a culture in which we are still centering the folks who are likely to commit the microaggression or or say or do something offensive. At the same time, I do think there is something to be said about agreeing upfront about values of respect or values that can really serve as the container for how you're having brave dialogues, because I also don't think that we can all just sort of explode any time that we experience a, a microaggression, right? So so I think there has to be a balance in which we can self-manage and be authentic and vulnerable and share the impact, not necessarily prioritizing the intent, but really speaking from our own experience and allowing the person who, who maybe offended us to also speak from their own experience and to humanize them in a way without sort of letting them off the hook, right? Like it's a both and. We can't just, it reminds me of the saying, hurt people hurt people, right? And that's not the framing that I'm trying to come at with this. I'm saying, you know what? I want to name this. I want to be vulnerable. I expect you to do the same. I expect you to do something different, but I'm also not going to villainize you or blame you or shame you or, you know, embarrass you, cancel you, any number of things. And that hopefully will help create the bridge between the two people. Yeah, as, as Jada was just talking, and Jane, as you set it up, it it made me think that it often, when we're talking about 
intent and impact that it's it's almost like we kind of go into that zero sum game mentality or where somehow if I say something that you did, then it means you lose and the the power shifts in a way. And and I think to the extent that we can name that and recognize that that's always in the space and sometimes there's more of a power imbalance or more and it like it, it just it makes me think that we're often having conversations with each other and there are the explicit words that we hear but then you know there's that other conversation that's happening that's the thoughts I'm having in response to what you're saying that I'm not saying and the thoughts that you're having in response to to what I'm saying and to the extent that we can make that more explicit I think helps to get at what you were talking about the the burden not being on the one person to have to do the work of this. It's got to be shared. I also want to say it's okay to get it wrong. I think while you tried to, you spoke a little bit about this, like I've, I have to admit, I've had some conversations with folks where I've been the receiver and did not receive it well, right? Like I got all defensive and just, you know, one time I felt, I think I walked out of the room, you know, none of us is perfect. We all have things we're working through, right? And I've been lucky enough because I'm committed to this work that the person was willing to have the conversation with me again. It took a few times, right? Because we did have other tensions in the dynamic. And so the idea here is not to kumbaya or to sort of assume that we can just have a conversation and and bias will go away. Rather, let's build this muscle, like Wiley, you said, let's talk more about these things that are unspeakable, but that everybody speaks about. (laughs) And let's try to create a different kind of workplace where we can bring our full selves, whatever, you know, those aspects are. It's, it's as if, I don't know, like we're, we're socialized that if somebody calls me in for something that I did, that it's as if, you know, my whole character is on the line. Mm -hmm rather than me mm. not being quite so narcissistic in the moment and just sort of saying, this person is addressing something that I did or said, and maybe even a pattern, but that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean there's no hope for my entire character. So if I can just sit with that one thing that's being said right now, rather than feeling like I have to defend all of me. And I feel like sometimes that's what's in the room. And, and it, so then you're, you're expending energy sort of to Jado's point, trying to take care of somebody when the issue you wanted to raise then just doesn't get addressed. When we're talking about intent and impact, I think a lot of these questions or conversations that we're having rather kind of lead us to the question of like, does the intent ever really matter? You know, I I don't want to say that like (laughs) that it doesn't because I think it, the intention can lead to different kinds of, productivity in a conversation like if someone's just not about that life i guess for lack of a better <laughs> phrase and and someone is just on some wild stuff then i think that you know you're not really primed to have a, a meaningful conversation but if someone you know or believe to be well-intentioned says something that i think probably you can have a more fruitful discussion but i th- it almost feels like either way the intent really doesn't matter all that much and it's more about the impact and then a resolution or mutual agreement of how that situation unfolded. I, I don't know if that's fair to say, but I'd, I'd love to hear, <laughs> hear what you think about that. Yeah. Well, from my perspective, I think considering the intent helps me 
to connect a microaggression to the bigger organizational challenges that might be at play, right? So that it doesn't become personalized, right? So somebody makes a racist comment, you know, comment about my hair being straight, being more professional. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to assume that they're out to get me personally, rather that there's a, a greater challenge around how do we define professionalism here, right? And so for me, the intent helps me to frame that in the in the bigger context. It doesn't mean that there's always a connection to a bigger uh, challenge, but nine out of 10 times there there is, and I can use that information to create, you know, bigger ripples and more change. That being said, I do hear you. I think we overemphasize positive intent, especially when it comes to organizational culture. And so we do have to figure out a way, and I don't have the answer for this yet. I think we, we're working on it. Mm-hmm for folks who who have positive intent to also develop the muscle of owning the impact more readily, right? Because they just jump to the intent before they jump to the impact. I think we need to do it the other way. I own the impact and then we can have the intent, right? Mm -hmm. So I hear you in that. Yeah. I love, Jado, that you just said that because it brought me back to what Jane was saying to the to the folks who have to listen when somebody comes to have a brave dialogue. Part of the thing that, that I want to add is sort of don't worry about your intention. Just listen to what the impact was. Let, let that be the, the leading kind of frame of mind. loved what Wiley and Jaro had to say regarding intent versus impact, particularly the discussion around the fact that regardless of how innocuous or innocent your intent may have been, at the end of the day, it's just not about you. Yeah, I I was worried I might come off like a bit of a jerk or maybe, I don't know, insensitive um, when I asked about the intent not really mattering. But luckily, I, I think they got where my heart was. Let's hope our audience is as forgiving, Colin. I hope so. But if they aren't, then I could have a brave dialogue with them and suss out our feelings and hug it out. That's such a nice setup for what we discuss next. It's actually really hard to start these conversations when you've been hurt by something someone has said. What I really love about the Brave Dialogues program is that it helps teams learn how to initiate and how to receive these discussions. Brave dialogues are, are a way to create spaces of, of learning. And I think spaces of learning really get to spaces of uh, where people feel kind of psychologically safe. And, and so the idea behind brave dialogues is that, I mean, if you think about in any given day where you have an interaction with somebody and it, it just doesn't quite sit right with you, or there's a way in which you find yourself replaying the conversation or... If you're like me, you think of what you really wish you had said at two in the morning, two days later, rather than right when something happened. <laughs> and right, brave, brave dialogues give you an opportunity to either in the moment or afterwards revisit something that, again, you, you find yourself putting energy toward trying to manage how it made you feel. And so you invite someone to have a dialogue with you so that you can both learn from the conversation. 
That seems like it can be scary. I mean, our society is oriented around, <laughs> let's just kind of move on. Let's not talk about these mm -hmm. things. But that kind of compounds a trauma and it certainly doesn't address the situation. How do you create these spaces where coworkers or peers feel comfortable having these? It feels like that's half the battle for workplaces is creating this space where that's normalized and is a little bit a little bit less scary for lack of a better word. How do you go about doing that through a training and working with organizations? I think that's the the, the million the million dollar question and our proposed theory of change is that if you create a culture in which you normalize, as you're saying, brave dialogues, right? And we assume that all of us have the potential to commit a microaggression do, say or do something that might be offensive based on our implicit unconscious bias. If we all have the courage to speak up and come from a place of learning and empathy and understanding and assuming positive intent, but sharing the impact that we can then work through those disagreements rather than have that compounded impact that you're talking about. Because it's when you hold on to those experiences without sharing them with your colleagues that then that emotional labor grows over time, disengagement grows over time, and the trust essentially erodes as you as you move through your career. And so we are inviting folks to be a little uncomfortable and we are inviting folks to lean into this practice and we know that it's going to be uncomfortable for some more than others. And yet we do think that everyone will benefit not only in the short term, but in the long term and creating that safety and comfort that you're talking about. I'm wondering if either of you could share some details around the window of time that you can communicate. Not that there's ever an ex expiration date on mm -hmm. our feelings or anything, but when we talk about being uncomfortable or getting comfortable with talking about the uncomfortable, everyone kind of zooms out, like talking about racism or homophobia or something that is like a large ongoing thing that is not specific to a particular person. Sometimes you're thinking of like a concept, right? And so if people out there are anything like me, uh, the moment start, you know, internally feels gone after like an hour. And that if I bring it up again, <laughs> They're going to be like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, <laughs> something like that. So I'm just wondering if you can share a few, a uh, little more details around how you communicate that in terms of securing that safety with yourself in kind of working mm -hmm. up that bravery to bring up a conversation that might be, you know, days or even weeks later. Yeah, I, I think what comes to mind as you're as you're describing that is. Uh, it, it feels to me almost like a muscle that you have to build because I don't think we're accustomed to doing this, and I think. Oftentimes organizations have this sense that the kind of psychological safety comes from everyone just getting along and and, mm. it, and it feels like it's the exact opposite. It's, it's creating a space where people will feel like in the moment they can say something or if they need to come back to it two weeks later, that it'd be okay to say, you know what, it's taken me two weeks to really figure out what happened and what the most salient issue is for me around that exchange we had. And I wonder, you know, can I describe to you what I remember? And then you tell me what you remember and, and we go from there. Uh, because I, I think it, to me, in some ways, sometimes we really do need to address it right in the moment, but also 
you know, emotions are incredible data that sometimes we need mm-hmm. a couple minutes to process what the, the emotions are telling us and, and maybe we need the hour. So, mm-hmm. yeah. On the flip side of that, if you are the person who missteps and somebody approaches you to have this conversation that obviously it took took some emotional labor for them to get to this point, what recommendations or tips or things should they have in mind as they're receiving this feedback from their peer or coworker? Hmm. Yeah, I, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is is to really to listen. And, and that seems so simple, but it's pretty hard. If you're anything like I am, it's almost like as I'm listening, I'm finishing somebody's sentence in my head before they even mm-hmm. get to the end of it, right? For sure. Or especially if they're coming to me and and I'm starting to get that feeling in my throat where it's about me and something that I did wrong, then I'm, I'm going into defensive mode or wanting to s- scramble my way out of this one somehow. And and so I'd say to, to really just sit with it and, and listen, because I, I think it is it's almost a gift if a colleague is coming to you to talk to you because I think it signals that there's a level of trust and there's a level in investment in the relationship. And so maybe starting there as you receive the information will help you to be able to just kind of sit with it. And I guess the second thing that comes to my mind is, and I say this after years of therapy, there are ways <laughs> to to kind of address it where you do the thing of... Um, I'm I'm really sorry that what I did made you feel that way, which when I get that, I feel really lousy. It doesn't really make me feel much better. And it's <laughs> yeah. sort of like like it's almost like signaling, I don't think I really mm-hmm. did what you think I did, but I'll offer you an apology. So I, I'd also think about what the person is asking for and mm-hmm. what kind of apology you're giving, because really sometimes we just want to be heard. That's really key. I think being heard, one thing that I have heard that I do not, that doesn't make me feel good also is when folks say, I don't know what I did, but I'm going to apologize anyways. And so the, yeah. the opportunity <laughs> for learning is it, you take away the opportunity for learning. Like for me, I'd rather you tell me, you know, I don't remember saying that. I want to think about it. And can we come back to it and be honest, right? And work with that. But if if you're sort of trying to create this learning environment where you want everyone to be brave, you need to leave a little room for those mistakes and for, for the nuances. I'm, I'm glad, Wiley, that you brought up the, the non-resolution of, of people saying, like, how I made you feel, because it's, it's funny how, like, just flipping a few words can make ownership or transfer ownership of of the conversation so i'm thinking in my mind now about how different it would sound and feel if someone were to say i'm sorry for how i made you feel mm-hmm. or i'm sorry that what i said made you feel that way like yes. to me if someone says i'm sorry for the way that i made you feel is taking like an ownership that like i said this thing it made you feel this way and i apologize for that as opposed to i said this thing and you took it this way yes so i'm sorry <laughs> that you you know, either don't have a thick enough skin or misinterpreted me. I didn't do anything wrong, but you know, it's, it's absolutely, it it just kind of passes the buck to no one really. (laughs) And that's not really, uh, it's not terribly productive, I suppose. So I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, when when we talk about impact and intent, isn't that the sort of most common example that um, I could step on your foot 
And I sure didn't intend to step on your foot, but I probably left you in pain from stepping right. on your foot. Yep. So, so I kind of have to, I have to own that. I'm sorry that your foot hurts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yes, uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> is there kind of a the the flip side of that? Is there too far someone can go with their apology or acknowledgement of a situation? Oh, it's a, such a good question. I would say I wouldn't say too far. I have experience where folks get too emotional. And then they add to the emotional labor of the feedback or the the person bringing the dialogue and the conversation forward. So everything from guilt leading to overcompensation. By overcompensation, I mean a lack of critical feedback to me. So now all of a sudden I am perfect and I do everything well and I know I'm messing up. I'm like, but because we've had this conversation, somehow there's a outcome there. I won't get into tears, but certainly we all are familiar. And yeah, those are the, the ones I can think about. Wait, but Jaro, that, that really makes me think, you know, Jaro and I often in our workshops, we model a, a brave dialogue. And now this, this I, I think the next time we do one, I'm going to be the person who's so overreacting <laughs> that you then feel like <laughs> you're now having to take care of me around my overreacting and yeah. my, my tears. And I my know. Apologies. And sometimes I think too, you know, when we do our demo, folks get into over intellectualizing and they're like, they'll recite, oh, oh, well, start to say, what was the microaggression rather than really get in touch with the hard aspect of it or sort of the impact aspect of it, which I think is also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If you, when you're working with companies or groups, what, when's the best time to start laying the foundation for the culture that supports this, for the training that allows people to have these conversations? What are some simple things that business leaders, CEOs, HR leaders can think about now to create places where those brave dialogues can occur? Well, I'll start. I'll say, I'll say for an organization that that is just getting started or is relatively young, I think the more that it's modeled by everyone, especially the folks in senior positions, so that you're signaling that this isn't just something that we want the employees to participate in. It, it's everything that we all do. The sooner you can do it, the better. But for the most part, we're working with organizations that have been in existence for decades, and. I think it's just important to start it as soon as you can start it, as soon as you, anyone can start modeling it and doing it in such a way that people don't feel as though there are going to be repercussions or backlash. Because I know, and, and Jado, we just had this recently where people will say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do this, but am I going to be able to do it with my manager? Is my manager really going to be open to me walking in and saying, you made that comment in last week's meeting and, and it's not mm. sitting with me well. And it's really got to be something that people at every level of the organization see that it's safe to do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's probably something, myself included, a lot of people don't always think of in that context. I think sometimes when we're thinking about these conversations, it's usually people who are the same level, just like you know another coworker, someone that you work next to, or they kind of view it as 
kind of a downwards or like a linear thing that there's like a manager communicating to a direct report or, you know, some, some kind of like top down communication. So I think that is a very important call out to talk about the all encompassing nature of these conversations and that there is no limit or barrier of entry to having that conversation. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just offer that for for those of you who are team leaders, you can model having these dialogues as a as a team, and that also can be quite transformative in terms of creating greater group cohesion and and team effectiveness because it is normalizing when you're able to do it as a group and you do create more safety, even though it might be scarier. And if you're the leader, you have that opportunity, which is awesome. I, I mean, I think for me, what it also raises is we still kind of have this this notion of the leader being the person who gets it right every time, the person who thinks quickly on their feet and has the right answer. And, and I wish if we just had more models of leaders who are willing to say, you know what, I want to go back. I, I want to redo that conversation we had last week. I, I, I want to, I mean, not explicitly, but sort of implicitly be suggesting, I want to be humble. And, and, and if we can get at that model of leadership and people can see that demonstrated and that trickles down, then I think it'll be easier to do this. Just being able to build trust in a different way, right? So I think that we think about trust as sort of, again, a straight and narrow and positive. But to build trust, you really do have to lean into something deeper and when folks are coming to you with a brave dialogue, chances are that the issue that they're bringing to you has happened multiple times. Very seldom does mm-hmm. anyone have a dialogue like this because it is so emotional or so taxing. And it's certainly any microaggression can be like that. We've experienced something various times. We're coming to you because we care and we may be hurt. And that's the frame that I think helps to receive. And to me, honestly, it's even it's harder to receive because I feel so much guilt and then I I want to caretake. Right. And so we have to manage ourselves in that process and remember that this is a deeper building that's happening and that we have to be able to sort of hang in there through the tough time to get to the the deeper sense of relationship at work. Yeah. And what you're saying now, Jado, one of the things we talk about with Brave Dialogues is to not assume that it's going to be all nice and tidy and neat and clean and you're going to walk away and everybody's going to be happy. I mean, it might be one of, dare I say, five brave dialogues you have to have with somebody, 10, I don't know. I mean, if mm. you're in it for the long haul, you're just willing to keep coming at it. If it's if it's messy, it's you're probably on mm. the right track. If it's too neat and clean, it probably isn't brave enough. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then the other thing, Colin, that you were saying to think, why is this important to the other person? The other part that matters to me is I, I just want the person to know that it is mm-hmm. important to me <laughs> because mm-hmm. I wouldn't yeah. be coming to you if I didn't feel it was important. For sure. So, yeah. I think there's also something there that is a good reminder and inherently unfair that I think the folks who bear the weight of having to decide whether or not to have these conversations are often in the equity-seeking groups. And there are folks who are very rarely in that situation where they need to think about, should I broach this? And, And I think it's just a reminder to reflect on our own power and privilege in the workplace. And again, to really take that 
feedback as an investment in a relationship and some some support in getting better and improving. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the other thing too for me is I I wish we were better at having kind of what I think of as meta conversations, which I know would then make conversations last even longer than we probably have the time to <laughs> in, in our days. But like, I'd rather have somebody, if I came to them and was initiating a brave dialogue, I'd rather have them say to me, oh, Wiley, right now I'm feeling something in the pit of my stomach. And I don't know what that's telling me, but oh, it's, it's, it's making me feel uncomfortable. At least if that's in the space, I can work with that more right. than somebody just trying to be like cross their arms and say the right thing or give the right apology. Oh, come on. Let's just get real with each other and say what's happening mm-hmm. in our heads and in our guts and around us. It's always in the room. For sure. I mean, obviously, everyone is well aware of the last calendar year in this country, <laughs> and it has been quite a roller coaster. And I think so many things that for underrepresented and equity seeking groups, th- this is everyday life. But now it's these conversations that are happening every day on a really large scale. While that's good, I think one of the things that I don't want to say I've struggled with, but I've just had to do more of. And each time I do it, I want to make sure that I'm trying to be productive about it is like letting people know how it's always made me feel. It took a black man getting killed slowly on camera for people to, for no other way to phrase it, give a shit about black people in our lives here. And recently now everybody's like kind of on this big support train of Asian American violence here or violence against Asian Americans. And like, I'm happy that all of these things are, are happening. Like, I'm not trying to say that don't do these things because it's important to call all of inequity and violence and racial violence, all of these things. It's so important to get that out on the table and talk about it and have open and honest conversations. But at the same time, I feel like so many of us have been trying to have these conversations for a long time. So now when people want to talk about it, Mm I like to send her a little bit about like, well, this is how it's always made me feel like that time that this happened and you didn't say anything mm-hmm. or like that time that this happened and I brought it up and you know, you kind of pass it off. Like it's, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a phrase we all now know where people call it like, you know, bringing up old or like, you know, like bring, uh, you know, and, and like, sometimes I feel like I'm doing that, but at the same time, it's like, that's, partially what was in the back of my mind at the top of this episode where I was saying like, what are some of the tricks of the trade, I guess, in Mm -hmm. bringing up these conversations? Because sometimes this is about stuff that I felt a certain way about years ago, Mm -hmm. months ago, you know, whatever it may be, because so much of these discussions are at the forefront now. And I think, you know, there's just so many varying degrees of of ways that we are thinking and talking about this. I know that this is a bit long winded (laughs) at this point. I don't like to get pulled pity about this stuff. No, that's real. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that, Colin. I I think that's really, really important. I've also heard from folks that they're not willing to have the conversation right now. They have enough with their own experience of trauma 
having to live in the world right now with everything that's happening. And by folks, I mean like Black and Indigenous people of color, right? And so for those of you who are white allies, you do have to organize yourselves and give folks some space to take care of themselves as well, because that's part of the part of the journey. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to phrase it. This is not about making yourself feel better <laughs> about the things that are happening here. It's it's helping others feel better and like we're talking about psychologically safe and just trying to provide the space for one another, I guess, to just to be mm -hmm. better. Not easy, but it's important. That's right. Yeah. I actually once heard, I believe it was on a podcast. I wish I could remember which one, but it was around having more meaningful conversations. It wasn't like specific to intent and impact like we're talking about now, but I still think it's applicable. And how to have more productive conversations is to not, it's very hard to like remove yourself from thinking of the next thing you want to say or, or, or hearing what someone is saying and be like, oh, like, you know, your, your mind starts racing. Oh, what can I say? How, what's a great follow-up for this? Like a better pathway towards the conversation is when someone is speaking to you, thinking about why why is what this person is saying important to them? Mm -hmm. So then you're starting to think more critically about, all right, this is what they're saying. Why is it important to them? Because then you're decentering yourself because ultimately it's not about you. I have just always found that super helpful in when I'm having these conversations with people and trying to think critically and evaluate and everything. I, I hear these things. I'm like, well, why is it important to them? And I think like in these contexts that, that can be, really impactful because you are placing the emphasis on the person and not yourself. And I guess that's the whole point of what we're talking about here. I wanted to yell out preach, but that's not the right. You know <laughs> hey, that's okay. Hey, if, if it moves, you like, get in there. Wow. Like <laughs> That's wonderful. Jaro was ready to have church up in here. I, I love it. Yeah, you can totally tell they love what they do. It's so awesome to be able to pick their brains and learn from them. For sure. We see a lot of this in the public debate now, so I wanted to get their take on it. The question is, what if somebody in the majority group or the group with the most privilege and the most power is offended or hurt by something somebody else says? You may be surprised at their answer. have an opinion. <laughs> so <laughs> a couple of things. One, if if you are really trying to bridge across difference as a person in the quote unquote dominant group, I would say you do have to build your emotion, what I call your emotional toolbox and being able to develop grit in the same way that those folks who are not who are underrepresented or who haven't or who are seeking equity have developed grit and awareness and empathy skills and just resilience over time, right? I think there's a, a disconnect. And I think that's by design that the, some of us, when we have privilege, we are so unaware of lack thereof that we don't build the muscle of resilience around that particular experience, right? So some of us, and myself included, you know, I'm a cisgender woman, for example, 
and I have trans friends, I know that we have different experiences, right? I may have, I may have feelings based on that inequity. And yet I don't want to center myself when it comes to that conversation or those instances. The other piece of it, I would say is I don't necessarily know that getting offended over a reverse stereotype, I don't know how close that aligns with the idea of reverse racism or reverse discrimination. So I would question myself around that if I have a reaction, which again, I have had, you know, we're all human, you know, oftentimes is the idea of, of reverse. And in order to have For example, racism is having not only the identity, but also the fact that you have power associated with that particular identity, right? Power and privilege is not just being white for the sake of being white, for example. And so when I when I have those experiences where I'm like, oh, I have a feeling about that, whatever that thing is, I do ask myself, where is it coming from? Is it really coming from a place of more about my group or the identity, or is it more interpersonal, right? Am I, do I need to process something with this person? And if I, and if I do need to process something, then if I have a relationship with them, I should still be able to do that. But I have a couple of steps before that. And what you're saying, Jado, it, it, it really was, was making me think about, you know, if you experience something and obviously everyone's feelings need to be kind of recognized and validated. I think I would want to be mindful. So if I'm speaking as somebody who's white, am I talking about something that that was said or done to me that's at an individual level, or am I getting at something that's systemic? Because I think mm-hmm. more often than not, when we're talking about microaggressions, kind of to what Colin was saying about, really, you want to talk about this now? It's sort of like, it, it's it's so everywhere in every part of the organization, in every part of our culture, that the burden of it is so great. And I, I guess I would want to ask the person, is that what you're bringing up right now? Is it your history of kind of being expected to speak on behalf of everybody who's white? Or is it your experience of having to take on the the burden of the association of, of your race or you know whatever? Or is it that the person offended you in that moment? And let's, let's try to contextualize it. Uh, and, I, and I would want the person to be thinking about that when they came to have the conversation. Yeah, I've also had the experience of folks. And again, we do a lot of training, so I have a lot of stories where someone, it appears like someone takes something as offensive based on their own past history, right? So not necessarily that one incident. I think something that maybe you were talking about, Wiley. And it almost feels like they're blowing it out of proportion, right? Like somebody got feedback about being committing a racialized microaggression and they translate that into everyone rejected me now and I've been canceled in the organization rather than, you know what, it was just one feedback conversation, something you should work on, right? And so I do think sometimes it does relate to the fragility piece and developing the muscle of receiving that type of feedback and knowing that we all have bias and that doesn't make us a bad person, like you said, Wiley. And we still have responsibility to be responsive to one another in the workplace. When all is said and done, it's clear the conversations around intent and impact are hard and they can be pretty uncomfortable. But I like what Wiley and Yaro had to say. If we wanna create a healthier, more inclusive work environment, we need to normalize having challenging conversations. Earlier in the season, in our Codes of Conduct episode, we sat down with Courtney Sider, the VP of People at Hologram. At 
the end of our discussion, before we turned off our mics, she had this to say, which I think sums it all up pretty well. I mean, this is the stuff, like just conversations with no clear conclusion, like no clear action item. It's so hard to like be okay with that. But this is, you know, I think it almost has to be uncomfortable and we have to live in that murky feeling before like a a larger truth can emerge from it. So just getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is kind of the biggest lesson of, of this work. A Better Workplace is a production of Wistia Studios. The hosts are Jane Jackson and yours truly, Colin Denny. This episode was written and produced by Ron Dawson, edited by Adam Day, and mixed by Jarrett Floyd. Huge thanks to our guests, Annalie Flowerhorn, Wiley Davey, and Yaro Fong Olivares. Be sure to check the show notes for links to their work. If you like what we're doing on the show, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you'd leave us a rating and a review. Another great way you can support the show is by signing up for our email list at our website, wistia.com, and sharing the show on social media. Till next time, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.